afraid for us to do this, and I think it would actually make it a little more fun, is for us to do it popcorn style. <laughs> so um, I'll just call them the first person, and then once you're done with the question, go ahead and popcorn somebody, and then they'll, it'll be their turn. <laughs> okay, so um, first question. How about we start with Wes, just because he's right here. So why don't you go ahead and read the question? All right. A uh, 52-year-old woman presents complaining of generalized fatigue and weakness for the past week. She admits to a 40-pack year history of smoking, occasional alcohol use. Over the past several weeks, she's noticed that her clothes have become loose-fitting. She's lost 20 pounds. On physical, she's it's unremarkable except for an intermittent hacking cough. Uh, chest X-ray demonstrates a mediastinal mass. The serum lights are 116, 47, 90, 10, 10, 0 0.6. What's the most important or what's the most appropriate initial uh, management? Um, I would say uh, I would say C. She needs to get worked up. Okay. And then to do B. Okay, so if you if you had to pick right now between the two, which one would you pick first? Um, I mean, I would I would put these her are, on these B. Are actual, well, these are supposed to be like your boards, so you're gonna actually have questions like this, and you're gonna have to pick a bubble in and so answer. So some of them, yeah, some of them might seem like the right answer, but it's what's the appropriate initial management? Yeah. Um. Yeah, so you just have to answer what the you know, that last. Uh, I guess you just, uh, I'll just give her A. Okay. Okay. Not. What do you think she has? SIADH. Okay, very good. So, in this, she does have SIADH, and, you, and we'll talk about that in a second. The answer here is actually fluid restriction, and we'll talk about why. So, you're absolutely right. This patient does have SIADH. The mediastinal mass in the chest x-ray kind of shows us that. It says that um, maybe that's what's secreting the, um, ADH or the vasopressin hormone, and she has a low serum sodium. So you have an excess secretion of ADH, and that um, will pretty much retain a lot of volume, and you'll have pretty much a dilution effect. So it's a diagnosis of exclusion. Symptoms are pretty much what that lady presented with anorexia, nausea, vomiting, headache, irritability, um, myalgias, and weakness. Her serum sodium was less than 135. Elevated urine concentration of sodium, hyp um, hypotonicity, her uh, plasma is going to be very. Uh, is not going to be concentrated, um, I'm sorry, it's going to be uh, very dilute, um, and inappropriately concentrated urine, and all in the setting of normal renal, adrenal, thyroid functions, and she's euphalemic. Um, so the treatment here would be, would here would be salem and intravenous, sa saline and intravenous uh, furosemide, and demeclocycline is then what you would give her, but it's someone with chronic SIDH with failure to the fluid restriction. So you do want to admit someone like that, but initially you want to fluid restrict them, and then you can do the admission. Okay. So when you actually call the resident and they say, "What did you do?" I said, "You say nothing." Actually, yeah. I checked their labs. And I fluid restricted. <laughs> <laughs> like they're, they're going to say, "Oh, why don't you even saline or something?" And you actually say, "No, that's not the treatment for this. This person doesn't have like they're not seizing or something like that." Okay. So who do you want to popcorn? I'll popcorn to Pam and make her yell. <laughs> make you a team. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
Um, do one of you guys want to chime in? Right, so, or I don't care. So, um, with the lady with breast cancer, you know, you're thinking like maybe pleural fusion. She's got decreased breast on the um, with the right side, and she's not satting very well. And she's tachycardic. So, you know, things you typically about her like is it some like malignant pleural fusion? Is it could be maybe a pneumonia? Maybe less likely like you know it could be key, um, too. So I would probably you know first things are A B's and C's. So obviously provide oxygen is good. Um, then you want to do a chest X-ray, um, but you'll kind of already know she's got decreased breast on the right side. So I would think it's probably and that's actually the correct answer. So absolutely, thinking PE is actually um, something that would be on the differential, but also a, a pleural effusion um, is also high up there. So she, we're told that this lady has breast cancer, and breast cancer can actually metastasize the pleura, and it would result in effusions. So a fluid collection in the pleura would reduce the vital capacity, and if it limits the lung's ability to expand, you can have a little bit of shortness of breath. And here she has tachypnea, tachycardia, hypoxemia. So you can get an upright chest x-ray to evaluate for like an air fluid level. Remember if a patient is supine, you may not necessarily see the air fluid level, you may just see haziness. But if a patient is sick enough that they can't sit upright to take the x-ray, even a, like a left lateral decube can show you an air fluid level. I take exception with your use of the term air fluid level. Yes. Because really what you'd see is a meniscus. Okay. Because only if you had air, free air in the portal space, pneumothorax above the portal fluid, which actually see a horizontal level. Okay. If it's just a portal effusion, what you'd see is a meniscus just that stacks up the chest okay. wall. Okay. Um, so that would pretty much be confirmation of presence of fluid by seeing that meniscus, and you want to do a thoracostomy right there just to drain it. Um, don't confuse it with a PE, even though it's possible, but the symptoms are a little bit different. It's a sudden onset of worsening of, uh, of breathing. There's pleuritic chest pain, even though it's it may not necessarily be present, but the sudden onset could kind of tip you off to that. And then clear lungs on examination. Um, and then in the answer choices, they also had congestive heart failure, which presents relatively similar. You'd have the hypoxemia, tachypnea, you'd also have orthopnea. Um, you may have pleural effusions, but they would be more bilateral than just one-sided. Or if they're one-sided, they're mostly on the left. Or, yes. And then treatment would be oxygen, nitro, and furosemide. And then pneumonia presents with gradual onset. You'll have fevers and cough. And you actually see an infiltrate in the infected lobe. Potentially, sometimes if it's too early, you may not necessarily see anything. Okay? Two, two further comments. One is she still could have a PE, even though she's got, uh, obviously, a pleural effusion. Okay. And the second thing is their use of the word thoracostomy is not correct, they should be using fluorocentesis, okay. where you would take a diagnostic tap or even a therapeutic tap of the fluid, but not necessarily put a big hose in the chest okay. to begin with. Right. So that, that last answer, E, should have been fluorocentesis as opposed to fluorocostomy. And you would, that, you would do a diagnostic large volume fluorocentesis <laughs> first, and then if it recurred, you'd put the chest tube in, you'd expect it to recur. Right, because she already has the metastatic purpose. Okay. Not to beat this enough, but just like in the first question, always Pay attention to what the question is asking. It said, what's the most appropriate next step or what would you do first? And so in this one, you have an abnormal, like Sharon said, you have ABCs, you had abnormal uh, CO, or oxygen, you need to put something on oxygen. So you right away have to look for that in the answer places. And you're going to do a full workup on this lady, but uh, make sure you're addressing the, the question. Thank you. Okay, Pedro, popcorn two. Send it back to the I'll take it for the loop.
Okay, so Randy. Oh. Randy. Yeah. 
So now you're Eric? I'm not, okay. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> which of the following normal test results is the earliest indicator of biological damage from full body penetration heat radiation? <laughs> 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 Wait, he's Eric. Okay. Yeah, Eric's used to penetration. Uh, I have no idea what this answer is, so I'm just going to guess and I'm going to say C, leukopenia. Okay, it's very close. I think James is the <laughs> I don't want to go with James, as you say. I want to be my own man. So the answer is actually lymphopenia. Um, okay, so let's talk about radiation for a second. Um, there's three different particles. Alpha particles are pretty much the weakest ones. They don't really penetrate much. They have to be physically put into, like, either inhaled, ingested, or in, into an open wound. Beta particles penetrate just a few centimeters into tissue, and then gamma and x-rays penetrate deeply into the tissues, and that's pr pretty much what we get when we get x-rays. Um, and there's something called acute radiation syndrome, which there's signs and symptoms um, that occur after. There's whole body um, irradiation, and they use like the gray units, which translate into 100 um, rods. So a major thing to think about when someone gets radiation is that um, th it's very harmful to rapidly uh, proliferating cells. So um, gut, um, gut cells, hematopoietic cells, reproductive system cells are the first ones to usually go with that. And so radiation will usually destroy um, circulating lymphocytes and stem cells. And there'll be a rapid decline in the lymphocytes initially. And that's what, that'll be the earliest sign that you actually see. Leukocytes and platelets in general will initially rise and then kind of dip down 30 days later. Um, and RBCs will decline and they may get a little bit anemic, but it's not to the extent that um, lymphocytes actually decrease. So lymphocytes would just be a more specific answer than leukocytes. So right. popcorn? I'm going to head it back to the med students. I'm going to go with Lee. <laughs> so a 23-year-old man presents holding both hands over his left eye. He's playing basketball with another player hit him in the eye. He's able to cooperate with the examination and reports decreased vision. Definitive treatment option in the ED is. Um, is that eye trauma? Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so he's ha having some decreased vision. Yeah, I'm just what? trying to figure, like, not, the question doesn't give you too much. So you just said decreased vision? Mm -hmm. um, I go with probably B then. Okay. Oh, that's supposed to say pending, by the way. <laughs> Okay, why uh, why do you think D versus, what do you think is going on with him? Like what's going on with his eye? Uh, I mean, you know, trauma to the eye, you could have like a retrobulbar hemorrhage, but I don't really see any evidence of that in the question. Um, so if that was the case, and you do like a lateral canthotomy. Okay, um, you're on the right track there. Yeah. It's okay, uh, so. <laughs> if you have like a or something, you could give him a like, carbonic inhibitor. Um, I don't think he has proptosis or anything, so I don't know why you put pressure on the eye. Okay, so w what you initially said is actually the right answer here. So you want to do a lateral canthotomy on this patient because so a retrobulbar hemorrhage is what you are worried about. And if this patient is coming in talking about decreased vision, you're right. They're not talking about proptotic eye or anything um, like that. But I think they also want, to want you to think like worse first. And so retro you're going to get a retrobulbar hemorrhage and you wanna do you're going to see proptosis from the hemorrhage. You're going to have some maybe vision loss. And you're going to get the glaucoma from maybe the um, bleeding, pushing on the eye. And immediate decompression is what you want to do. So you want to go in and cut the lateral canthal 
tendon, you may actually see like the eye come out and you may see the blood um, dripping out. And then you want to get octo involved, you want the consult. Um, and then you're right, if there is um, intraocular pressure increase, then you want to use the, car uh, the carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, mannitol, or even a topical beta blocker. And never put gentle pressure on someone that says, oh, I think I have some decreased vision, because you can actually make it worse, like if it's glaucoma and you just increase their pressure right there. Dr. So the answer to the question, yeah. it's if indeed, the, the question was written pretty poor. It's, back, it's back, hard. Yeah. And uh, you don't see any true signs of retrobulbar symptoma compromising um, the blood flow to the orbit here, other than the vision loss. But vision loss can be a traumatic iritis. It can be a hemorrhage. It can be retinal detachment. It could be plenty of other things. So the rush to that would be, and they're all painful because someone's smacked in the right eye, right? Um, retinal detachments aren't usually painful, but they happen with trauma. So uh, the question is very poorly written, but knowing that if you knew there was a retrobulbar hematoma with vision loss, then the answer is lateral tendon. I mean, it could have a, something as simple as a visual axis corneal abrasion right. that would account for all of this, and that would be the most likely thing. Dislocation, you could have a rupture of the globe for all you know. Yeah. A rupture of the globe would be even more, it would be rare, but more common than a retrobulbar hematoma. A rupture of globe, you wouldn't like slice the side of the eye. So, yeah. okay. Yeah. So right. It's a nice discussion of lateral confidence. Okay. Which is the, the proper thing we should do. We should do it if, if you have a retrobulbar hematoma. Lee, popcorn too. And you would always measure the intraocular pressure Before prior to doing do. a lateral canthotomy and a wake alert patient. And if his intraocular pressure is 20, he doesn't have a retro ball bar. He doesn't need it. If it's 70, okay. okay. But not 20. Let's go with uh, Cooper. Which of the following statements regarding non Willebrand disease is correct? Bleeding time, inadequate hepatic prevention, and common Willebrand factor. Most common. You're correct. Um, so it is the most common congenital bleeding disorder. Um, it's actually present in about 1% of the population. It's a deficiency, um, so absence or dysfunction of the von Willebrand factor. And it presents a skin or mucosal bleeding. You don't get the hemarthrosis. Um, that would be more a problem with coagulation factors. Um, and it's usually discovered in the setting of like a surgical procedure or trauma or even like at the on at menarche. Um, someone will come in and say, I'm having really um, heavy bleeding. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Today was perfect. Um, so, um, unlike other coagulation factors, pretty much von Willebrand factor and um, factor eight are the only two factors that are actually made in the vascular endothelial cells, not in the liver. Um, and so, all it does is it serves as a, as a cofactor for platelet adhesion, and it carries factor eight along with it in the circulation. Um, so, with a problem with von Willebrand factor, you're going to get prolonged bleeding time. You can use desmopressin to induce the release of von Willebrand factor from storage, um, but it's preferred treatment for controlling bleeding in patients with functioning but deficient von Willebrand factor. 
So just if they're having just low um, factor numbers. And vitamin K is what you use to reverse warfarin-induced um, anticoagulation, not in the setting of um, any, uh, in this setting, unvulnerable brain factor deficiency. Okay, popcorn two. Fifty-seven-year-old man presents complaining of weakness and lightheadedness after passing multiple maroon-colored stools. His past medical history is significant for primary immune thrombus, cytopenic, cytopenic fibra, vital signs, blood pressure 80 over 42, heart rate 140, respiratory rate 24, temperature 37. On physical exam, he appears very ill. DRE reveals gross blood. After initial fluid resuscitation, the, the patient's hemoglobin is 6.1. Platelet count is 7,000. Which of the following is the best course of treatment? Uh, so he's going to need um, his hemoglobin, so he's probably going to need some packed red blood cells. Um, and I'm not sure whether or not in IQP you can also give platelets, but I would, I would say. give platelets as well, so D. Okay, and, and that's the answer. So this patient has ITP, so it's an autoimmune disorder, and it's pretty much destruction of the platelets. You're gonna have um, um, antibodies in the circulation that are gonna find the platelets, bind to them, and then in organs like the spleen, it's gonna sequester all of them, and it's gonna have destruction of the platelets. So you're gonna have low platelets. And usually some people actually get it transiently after like recovery from a viral illness. Um, so if you transfuse platelets to someone like this, you're only prolonging the process, so it's only gonna be a consumptive um, process. So you give them platelets, and then they're gonna get destroyed as well. In this patient, though, he has a lower, uh, a low uh, GI bleed, and so giving him a, little, a platelet transfusion at that point in time is reasonable, um, because he's bleeding somewhere. Um, and you would want to give immune system suppressing drugs to kind of help the, uh, to kind of suppress this immune um, reaction. So methylprednisolone, 30 milligrams per kilogram IV per day, or you can use oral uh, prednisone, but it has to be an asymptomatic patient. Definitely not a patient presenting with a lower GI bleed and a hemoglobin of six. Um, IVIG will interrupt the autoimmune platelet um, destruction, and then in patients who are refractory to treatment, you can even go into a splenectomy. Is that methylprednisolone dose right? That's huge. That's the spinal cord injury dose, that's which is you know, 20 times what we normally give. That, that I think that's what they have. I didn't I didn't realize that it was actually yeah. so big. I mean, our, our normal asthma dose is you know, 125 <laughs> milligrams of methylprednisolone IV. Mm -hmm. This is 2,100 milligrams for a 70 kilogram person. That's huge. That Why do they have um, Rogam on one of the So Rogam is actually. Um, just a variant of, uh, so Rogam is given to pregnant women who are like RH negative and you're giving it to them to suppress uh, anti, uh, anti uh, auto, like antibodies against the, platelet, the red blood cells of the fetus. And so Rogam is just a more specific kind of um, like antibody that goes to find the antibodies in the body against the platelets. So it's a very specific antibody that you can give someone, but the reason you wouldn't give it to this patient is because it's really expensive. So I guess unless the patient is actually very, very ill to the point where you need to give them, like Rogam, then you would. But they said in this case it, it wouldn't change, 
the management of this patient if you go through everything that you need to give them. So the trade name of when it's given for ITP is called Winro. And when you give Winro, in RH negative, I'm sorry, RH negative. positive, RH positive patients with ITP. Why? Because you cause red blood cell hemolysis. Mm -hmm. So those antibodies out there now go attached to the red blood cells and save the platelets. And so your platelets do rise, but then you get more anemia. And so you can't do it in life-threatening bleed. You can do it in ITP that's recalcitrant to steroids, uh, but you have to monitor their H&H. &H. So you do it, in, you know, for pregnant women, you use Rogam for RH negative, right? Right. It's negative. But in ITP, they have to be RH positive and so not have life-threatening bleeding. Okay. And not be anemic. So understand. Oh, there's Michael on the other side. Habit. <laughs> 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 
All right. Okay. So this is an X-ray of something, and you can just take a look at it first, and then we'll get to the question. Um, and I'll come back to it after we read the question. So here's the question. pain and it's usually when you move their arm to like 60 to 120 degrees 
Um, or if it's acromioclavicular pain, it'll be more 120 to 180, so further up, which is a little bit subjective, but you'd know that it's more impingement syndrome. And then rotator cuff injuries, it's less likely in patients that are younger than 40. Again, patients will obviously come in complaining of pain, and there'll be activities where their arm is often lifted over their head a lot. Um, and they'll have localized discomfort and range of motion, and they'll have this drop arm test. So if you move their arm up to 90 degrees and have it there, and you let it go, their arm will drop. So this is where you know that it's probably a rotator um, cuff tear. It drops because it hurts to Right. <laughs> because the first 15 degrees are your deltoid, deltoid and, and then after that, it's supraspinatus, mm -hmm. which is one that's most common. Yes. All right. Who are we popcorning next? Michael? Me? Who would you like to popcorn? Oh, I, I don't understand the game. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to take four minutes back there. Pam, number two. Pam, number two. tenderness, she's got a positive home preg, um, after resuscitation is initiated, bedside abdominals, ultrasound is performed, next step in management should be, so we're starting resuscitation, say uh, D, 
Okay, so Dr. Marengo actually addressed this earlier. Um, so if we go back to um, the ultrasound, this is positive fluid in Morrison's uh, pouch. So you're, you see the kid, you see the kidney, and you see the liver, and then you see this pretty much as um, Wes said, like a positive. If this was a fast scan, this would be a positive fast. You see uh, fluid there. So you're correct. You want to get immediate gynecological consultation. So um, there's fluid in Morrison's pouch. This patient is hypotensive. She has a positive pregnancy test. She has fluid, free fluid in her abdomen. So it's going to be a ruptured ectopic until proven otherwise. Um, in an unstable patient, you can, you, you're not going to wait to do a, a coldocentesis. It's unnecessary. This patient just needs to be taken to the OR, and they need to do laparoscopy, laparotomy, depending on how, what a high suspicion um, they would have. So you want to start two large bore IVs and start on fluid resuscitation, CBC type, um, and cross match. You also want to know what her um, RH status is, and then you can get the beta HCG. Um, methotrexate, as Dr. Marengo was saying, it's chemo. So it's going to block DNA synthesis um, before cell division. And in an unstable patient, this is not a patient you want to start on methotrexate right now. She needs to go to the OR. Okay? All right. So who are we popcorning? Popcorn. We'll do uh, James. Diagnosis of conversion disorder can be made reliably if the patient exhibits the belly defaults. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so James, who would you like to popcorn? Oh. Sam. 
Dr. Koenig actually brought this up um, when she was talking, so it was perfect. So this is gamma-hydroxybutyric acid, which is a naturally occurring analog of GABA, which is a major inhibitory neurotransmitter in our body. And it has two precursors, and if you'd like to read them, they're... Um, and it causes euphoria, and that's why it turns into a drug of abuse. It's usually taken with something else, and in this case, ethanol, serum ethanol level was 20 in this patient. Um, and it's one of those, like, um, rape drugs, uh, because it induces a rapid coma. And so it leads to ataxia, sedation, respiratory depression, coma, apnea, and rarely death. In this case, the patient rapidly recovered um, and was conscious from a severely depressed state. The management is supportive, and you pay special attention to airway. Um, in this patient. Uh, and we'll stop. Sweet. Yeah. 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 Yeah.